Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. Back in the uh, in the uh, noughties and maybe even yeah, up to the, the teens there, sometimes recovery wasn't really something that people thought about very much, you know, and even the more basic messages of, you know, we need to focus on recovery. And again, you can argue back and forth about post-exercise window of opportunity, whatever, whether it matters or not, but there's some element of, of uh, recovery that matters when it comes to nutrition. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening to. Welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast. I'm your host, Zylan Fennec. Alongside me is David Lipman. He's a doctor. He's the director of Applied Science of Content at Super Sapiens. And he consistently says in our meetings that he's the funnier and the better host of this podcast. Was that a good enough uh, intro for you, Mr. Excellent Host? Yeah, well, listen, mate, I'm a, a man of science and it's pretty clear and proven that I am the funnier one. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see the science behind that. If you could present a paper, that would be great. Trust me, I'm a doctor. um you are a man of science and you geeked out big time on this episode with our guest brendan egan and this is right up your alley brendan was absolutely fantastic he's an associate professor he's a very very smart guy i didn't understand half the things uh, you guys were talking uh, talking about but what incredible insights and we'll get to brendan as this week's guest shortly um, David, I did want to give you a shout out because you actually do know what you're doing. I really, really enjoyed your latest blog post on the Super Sapiens website. Um, the term blood glucose and blood sugar are often used interchangeably when discussing continuous glucose monitors, but that isn't always correct, is it? Yeah, I think some of the discussions around accuracy and um, reproducibility are uh, probably go to the natural human bias of um, like thick slicing, like rules of thumb, those sort of things. You're not measuring the same thing. CGMs do not measure blood glucose. They are a rough surrogate for blood glucose at times, but uh, they measure interstitial glucose. This is, you know, a slightly different spot. If you are interested in understanding that, we have a really good blog post on that that took quite a while to produce um, and just look up, um, super sapiens, um, blood versus interstitial I N T E R S T I T I L A L interstitial. Um, and you'll find it. And it's basically like, you know, it's a different compartment we're measuring. And so basically there's more than just glucose in the blood. Um, you know, if you measure blood at different spots, it'll have slightly different glucose readings and then, you know, continuous glucose monitoring is different again. So, None of that's to say any of these are better than the other. They're just different measures. So to say, you know, to try and, uh, there's a famous quote that I've forgotten, but it's like to, you know, ask a, a horse how good a snake it is, you know, you're not going to do it justice. A horse is a great horse, not a good snake, right? So there's there's some famous quote there that's similar to that, but absolutely not that. So, you know, what I'm getting at is here, like I think people misunderstand things a little bit when talking about accuracy and, and lag even on, on um, CGMs because there is no lag between interstitial measures and interstitial measures. That There may be a difference between if you want it to be blood glucose, but we don't even know if that's relevant. So anyway, we're in its infancy. Um, we're trying to be part of the solution here and, and fund some research or not fund it, but, but provide some census for some research. So um, if you're a researcher, please reach out. And, and if you 
you know, if you're not a researcher and you're interested in the space, like think of, you know, maybe this will expand your view a little bit, but yes, we sort of talk about that and talk about what blood glucose is and, and all those things. So that, that blog does exist and I appreciate the, uh, the plug from you and the compliment as well, mate. And you started this off by saying, trust me, I'm a doctor, but I really enjoyed you struggling to spell interstitial and uh, talking about snakes and horses and stuff. Sounded very intelligent. Well done. Um, Thanks, mate. A couple of, just a couple just of... to be really clear that trust me, I'm a doctor is a bit of a joke. Like it's, it's tongue in cheek. So just before um, the mob comes for me, it, it is 100% a joke. No, I think we, we get that. Um, a couple of community shout-outs before we get to this episode's guest. Um, our graphic designer internally at Super Sapiens, Kane, completed the Tough Mudder recently. And he also did it for a good cause, if I'm not mistaken. No, the good cause, uh, maybe he did do the Tough Mudder for a good cause. He's raising money, though, for a half marathon he's doing. Um, so uh, I think that might be what you're referring to. But he might have done the Tough Mudder for a good cause as well. But um, yeah, he did Tough Mudder. Uh, I think that's awesome. I'm, uh, yeah, it's cool to see. Yeah, I know you're a big advocate for um, people at the company being athletes, and shout out to Kane. Super, super cool getting that done. Yeah, it's it probably um, to be really clear on the athlete thing. You know, the definition that Super Sapiens uses of athlete is you know anybody with a goal is an athlete. So in that definition, yeah, definitely uh, supportive of everyone being athletes at the company. In terms of more broadly, it's probably I'm I'm an advocate for people. A looking to improve themselves, but but more importantly, um, just being physically active. So yeah, super proud of of Kane and and you know getting out there and doing the things, as I am with everybody, right? Including what we're talking about next at SBT Gravel. Yeah, SBT Gravel took place last week. Uh, Bobby Julik uh, was there. Jack, our social media manager, was there as well as some of our ambassadors, Marley Blonsky, Lauren De Crescenzo. How did they get on? Uh, I mean, well, everyone had a really good time, which is the you know. They say, you know, Jack's favorite words are, I hear that gravel's a party at the front. I sorry, is, is a race at the front and a party at the back. And I think he tried to embrace that a little bit. Um, Bobby, in Bobby fashion, was very meticulous with his fueling, went about some stuff, was trialing some things. Really, you know, he had a good day doing that. I talked to him a bit about that yesterday. I know Jack had some good fun. I think, um, you know, Marley and, and uh, Lauren had a good day as well. So, yeah, just good to see all around, really. Um, apparently, it's a really successful day. Um, yeah, obviously we were we we're involved in the event, so it's cool to see that sort of continue to grow. And then congratulations to all Super Sapiens as well, taking place at uh, who competed in the Ironman seventy point three World Championships in Finland last weekend. How did our guys get guys and girls get on there, David? Well, yeah, many were there, many and a couple weren't. So you know, shout out to Eloise, uh, you know, former podcast guest who unfortunately is injured and, and rehabbing, but. Um, you know, she, she didn't get to go, unfortunately, but, you know, many others did go. So we had Onjan, uh, Danielle Lewis, Ben Canute all there, which was really good. And then, of, of course, a special mention to Marjolaine Pierre, who seems to get mentioned every podcast episode. Uh, she got seventh, uh, which is, you know, really impressive. And she was stoked with that. So I'm sure there were some other ones and some in the community. So if you did compete, by all means, reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Love to hear how Super Sapiens, you know, was used or is helping or all of the above. Um yeah, so super cool to see. And, and a friend of mine from Australia managed to get third in her age group as well, which is really cool. So congratulations, Regan. Yeah, we mentioned Marjolaine quite a lot at the moment. She's flying. I think we need to work on getting her on the pod as a guest. Um, David, what's happening with your rehab? How is your injured ankle coming along? Uh, it's coming along. Um, progressing rehab well. It's been a little bit more sore than I would have liked, but that's okay. Um, you, know, you sound frustrated. Yeah, I mean... 
it's 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 painful which is the annoying bit right like um it's good that it's progressing but it is still painful which is really frustrating because if you think about it from like a hierarchy of um i won't say hierarchy of needs but like in a hierarchical thought right yes i would love to be running but if i'm not running i'd love to be able to be as physically active as possible and i'm probably close to that aside from being able to run um but the probably below that sits like I'd love to be pain free and I'm actually not quite pain free. There are some times when I've done a bit more on it that it's still a bit sore. So that's really frustrating. Um, but we're getting there. Look, it's still not quite six weeks and I was told four to six weeks. So uh, still within the realms of like very reasonable uh, prediction. And when you run five kilometers on something after you've done it, it's probably going to stretch out a little bit. So pretty zen about it, doing better than I thought. Uh, it's been good to be back in London and be able to get to the gym, get to, you know, the rowing machine, those sort of things. So getting being physically active, which is nice. And what about you, mate? How's your training going? Yeah, I actually want to get a little serious for a little while, a little bit because I'm also frustrated. Um, I'm meant to be doing a marathon in November, but I keep getting sick. I keep getting injured. I was looking forward to being back home and getting back into a rhythm, getting back on a program on training peaks and building up some serious fitness. But I've just had setback after setback. Um, we also often talk about something called a life battery, and we've had other um, athletes on the podcast mention it, you know, in that exercise isn't necessarily the only stress you're going through. You also have general life stress, work stress, family stress, and you have different seasons in your life where I guess you have to compartmentalize, especially if you're not a professional athlete, in terms of what's more important and where to put your energies. Um so yeah, I think what you and I are probably experiencing is what a lot of athletes experience. And how do you cope with that mentally, you know, to 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 get through these challenges of not hitting these goals, especially as like A-type personalities and love being goal-orientated? Yeah, I think the most important thing is um, acknowledging that for people like you and I, probably the bulk of our stress isn't training and training may actually be stress relief. So acknowledging that... Um, Whilst we like to plan things, uh, the stresses in our life in training, we should probably, probably the smartest thing to do is plan around the stresses in our life, which is not training. Uh, so it's the first thing I'd say. The other thing, and this is something I'm having to embrace myself, is like, what's it teaching you and what are you like learning from it? So for you, you just said to me like, hey, you know, I wanted to get back here and get serious. And it's like, well, why can't you be serious when you're not at home? Why, like all those questions and start to explore that and, and what can it teach you there? What can being serious on the road look like? How can you train in a way that is sustainable? Why does it have to be like, if you think about it from a, a load perspective, why is load so much more when you're at home? Like maybe you need to do less load there and a little bit more load elsewhere. And maybe that's a ben more beneficial to balance everything and balance the stresses. Cause what I know of you is you get back from these trips, you fall in a bit of a heap. You're almost always sick. Um, and then you sort of try and like, all right, now I'm going to ship up, clean the diet up, do the training properly and do that. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe if you can be a little bit better on the road, a little bit more recovered on the road, a little bit more training on the road, you can do a little bit less when you get home and maybe that balances out more, or maybe it makes it worse. It's hard to know, but it's all a learning opportunity and, and kind of it's process related. So like if it was really easy and it was just like, Hey, here's a program, do the program, eat like this, and then you'll get the outcome. Then it wouldn't be fun. It wouldn't be interesting. We wouldn't be learning. Like I'm not, we can talk about whether my performances are good or bad uh, and depending on who you relate them to, you could say they're both. Um, the reality for me is like I train 
to explore and to learn and to be interested and try and learn for myself. That's why I write my own programs. If I wanted to be the best, I might be better off with someone else writing my programs, but I'm trying to learn and, and tinker around with my own stuff. So it's all learning for me. And so that's the sort of way I frame it. So at the moment, the learning is like, how can I train given my injury and, and then be in good physical and mental space and then perhaps be better running when I get back? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, for me, being at home versus being versus traveling, it's almost black and white and I've got this separation, um, especially as it relates to nutrition. You know, I have this subconscious thoughts where it's hard to eat healthy when you're on the road. So you, when you're on the road, it's just about survival and you just get what you can. And often that is the case. But I am working on looking at the whole person instead of looking at me as someone being, this is how who I am at home and this is who I am on the road, you know, and bringing that closer together and sort of trying to reprogram my brain to have healthier habits while traveling as well, even though I know my body doesn't cope so well with travel all the time which is why training load is different and obviously as a triathlete it's very hard for me to cycle and to swim when i'm away so the load naturally goes down but running i've managed to keep a really good running rhythm on this last trip where i was away for six weeks um but absolutely trying to mentally reframe stuff with regards to nutrition with regards to your not separating home and and travel so much but still see myself as that same person and that same athlete in those different scenarios yeah. And if you're struggling with um, travel in terms of stress load and that on the body, then maybe it's about how do you create extra space for recovery on the road? Can you wake up 15 minutes earlier to do extra meditation? Can you, you know, whatever it is, um, like maybe it's, it's that stuff you have to work on. Um, it, but it's hard. Like, listen, we're square peg round hole here. And, you know, the, the stuff you're traveling for is high demand. It's not like you're, yes, I'm going to do an eight hour day uh, from eight till four uh, on the road. It's, it's not that it's a lot more. So I guess what I'm getting at is there is easy to talk, but, um, the solutions are a lot more complicated and it's, it's always shades of gray, but, um, trying to sort of not concede to not be okay with sort of what the pattern that you've been in, because I reckon you, you can do better. Uh, and I mean that in a positive way, it's not like a pull your socks up. It's more like, I think you could do better. And I think you'd be happier doing that. No, I agree. And listen to us being serious and wise and trying to become better versions of ourselves. I like it. Um, just quickly, before we get to Brendan Egan, um, there is a mention of a paper he was working on on this uh, during this podcast. Is that live now? Yeah, it is live. Um, that paper is live. Brendan emailed me and said, thankfully, no egg on my face um, when he, he sent me the preprint and it, it is live now. Uh, the paper's title, we'll put it in the show notes, but the, the title is Acute Ingestion of a Ketone Monoester Without Co-Ingestion of Carbohydrate Improves Running Economy in Male Endurance Runners. And it's in the it's in Medicine, Science and Sports and Exercise uh, from August 11th and it's uh, currently e-published. So um, yeah, it's cool to see that. That's really interesting stuff. I mean, we talked about it in this podcast. Uh, we also talked about things like protein requirements for endurance athletes. So I think there's a lot in this podcast that people will get out of it and, and enjoy it. Yeah, hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Enjoy Brendan Egan. Today, we're talking to Associate Professor Brendan Egan. Brendan is the head of the School of Health and Human Performance at Dublin City University. Brendan's research investigates skeletal muscle function and adaptation across the life course with special interest in the synergy between nutrition and exercise interventions ranging from athletes to older adults. 
Brendan received his BSc Sports and Exercise Science from the University of Limerick in 2003, MSc Sport and Exercise Nutrition from Loughborough University in 2004, and PhD from Dublin City University in 2008, before completing two years of postdoctoral training at the Karolinska Institute. His current projects include resisted sled sprinting, weight cutting in combat sports and menstrual cycle and hormonal contraceptive use, as well as nutrition supplementation and performance, such as exogenous ketones, beetroot juice and caffeinated chewing gum. Outside of this, Brendan has significant experience as a performance nutritionist with emphasis on field-based team sports and endurance athletes. And we have it on very good authority that he was an exceptional athlete through his inner county Gaelic footballer with Sligo from 2003 to 2017. Brendan, that was officially the longest pod, the longest intro we've had on the podcast. We're out of time, unfortunately. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. That is a wrap. Okay, quick questions, quick answers. We'll get through. Yeah. <laughs> now, welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast, mate. Well done, Zyla. That was... Just so the listeners know, that was also your first read. Yeah, so well done, mate. That was, uh, was impressive. <laughs> I was panicking. I was panicking and trying to pay very, very close attention. But yeah, wonderful to have you. I know you two know each other, right? Where did you guys meet? Yeah, we met at a conference last year. We were both presenting. Um, it was an industry conference for Nutrition for Memory. There was like a bunch of sup- like uh, raw ingredient companies, supplement companies, then some academics. And it was a cool mix of people. And uh, yeah, Brendan and I got talking. I know uh, at the time he'd used, I think he'd used some CGMs previously. And then we were interested in yeah. in using some of ours. And, and we started talking about, uh, you know, where we saw the industry going and that sort of stuff. And that at that point, I thought, earmarked myself in the back of my head. I was like, we've got to get Brendan on the podcast. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> Then, then talking to people like Dave Dunn and a few others, they sort of mentioned mm-hmm. that he really knows what's going on. And and I started seeing some of your papers actually coming up on my uh, social media now that I knew who that author was. So it was yeah. cool. I was like, okay, this is, yeah, we got to talk to this guy. So thanks for joining us, Brendan. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Can you talk us through your academic journey? Where did it all begin, Brendan? Yeah, well, as you described there, um, it was 2003 that I had my uh, undergrad um um, graduation and um, I at that point I kind of had an interest in um, nutrition as a field and 2003 uh, well now it's a long time ago it doesn't feel that long ago but it is a long time ago and at the time there was actually very few uh, performance nutritionists and um, in fact the the masters at Loughborough that you mentioned was uh, one of the first if not the first uh, masters in sports nutrition so um, that graduating class, uh, you know, we, there was a small number of us and obviously a small number of practitioners at that time. But I honestly was much more interested in the research side of things. Um, I kind of did the master's in, in sports nutrition to have a vocational qualification coming out of sports science. And um, at the same time, it was kind of like an insurance policy because I really wanted to do a PhD and get into research and in an academic career. And yeah, just fortunately enough, um, the area that I was interested in was around um, moving more towards the molecular um, aspects of exercise uh, science. And there was a researcher in Dublin City University at the time, Don Gorman, um, just beginning to uh, to do that work. Um, so the area was around using muscle biopsies to look at uh, acute responses um, and to, to exercise sessions and also um, response to short-term training interventions. And yeah, just building out of that, then I, I sort of went down the rabbit hole of molecular exercise science um, you know, I still am involved in that, but it becomes harder and harder to do that without without the uh, the right kind of funding. Um, 
So in, in parallel to that, I developed a, a whole area around the more applied sports science and performance nutrition um, uh, route in terms of research. But again, alongside all of that for you know, the best part of 20 years, I've been working as a practitioner. Um, so I, I, wear, I wear both hats, uh, the practitioner hat and the, the academic hat. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't separate them. Um, David might, might remember from my uh, talk at that conference in Amsterdam, uh, I was struggling to separate the two hats because um, it uh, sometimes, you know, people talk about evidence-based practice and you kind of have to um, know what works in the field and what works in, in the research articles and you know, try and find a balance between the two. So we might talk more about that, but uh, obviously the third hat that I wear is that I, I did play um, sport at a decent level uh, here in Ireland. Uh, for quite some time so i have the um athlete centered view as well um i practiced most of what i preach and uh tried a lot of other things that i don't preach about but uh, again maybe we'll reveal some of those stories as, as we go along but uh yeah that's it in a nutshell i think the best scientists are always the most uh self ex uh self-experimentation inclined <laughs> i think most of them have done some some silly things and there's some famous stories right yeah, yeah. the helicopter back to pylori is the classic one that you always hear about yeah. Um, but so why nutrition though? Like what made you enter nutrition? What was the, what made you think, Hey, especially given it, you know, it would be different if you're graduating now, you'd say, listen, that's an established field. Mm. There's a good path. I want to go that way. I'm interested in it. But at that stage, obviously it was in its infancy, as you said. Yeah, probably two things. Um, the time this, and this is true, I think of many uh, people who get into an area that they like, you know, we had a, a lecturer in, um, in the university of Limerick, uh, professor Phil Jakeman, and, um, he really, uh, he was an excellent lecturer. Um, I guess some people disliked his style. I really liked it. It was, you know, really detailed and, uh, it didn't, um, you know, it didn't pander to, uh, to keeping things very superficial and quite deep. And I, I enjoyed that. And that kind of, I think, was part of the reason why I became more interested in the molecular science. He was one of the, um, I think he may have been, if not the first, one of the first professors of exercise science uh, in Ireland. And his background was actually biochemistry. So he, he you know, he went fairly deep into, into the, that whole area. And um, so he was exercise metabolism and sports nutrition. And, you know, that ignited my interest there. But obviously, you know, coming out of sports science, there was, and some respects there sometimes still is this question about what do you do as, as a qualification you know how do you get employment having done a four-year degree um so nutrition seemed something that i was interested in personally because like i said at that point i was um you know playing at a decent level as an athlete and um you know able to experiment and try different things and uh, there's a kind of coalescing of those two different interests that uh, that really pulled it together for me um, and can we talk about some of your learnings then through your work experience that you've had with, with your athletes? Um, I mean, like what's been your favorite sport to work with? Well, I've worked in mostly in, uh, in team sports and field-based uh, team sports. So um, obviously in Ireland, we've got our national games, which are um, Gaelic football and, and hurling. Um, so um, people can look those up, I guess, if they, they want to get a demo. I, I've explained them on other podcasts, but it takes so long. That, uh, we'll, just say, we'll just say that uh, that hurling is a, is a stick and ball sport that um, you, know, you really need to just uh, search on YouTube to find out what it actually is. Gaelic football is probably more easily uh, analogous to something like Australian rules football. And uh, in fact, there is, a, there is a game that used to be played, a compromise rules game that was called where the best Gaelic footballers played the best Australian it, footballers. It's funny you uh, called it compromise rules because in Australia that's called international rules. It speaks volumes to, <laughs> it speaks volumes to the perspective there, doesn't it? 
Maybe it could have changed names. I think there was actually, there were so many uh, brawls at one point that they, I think they tried to rebrand it as, as something else instead of compromise. Maybe international yeah. was sounded more of a, or less, uh, less confrontational. But um, yeah, so, so those, um, those sports were the ones that I've worked in quite a bit. And then obviously worked uh, in endurance sports with individual athletes because I, I did run, run a, a kind of, um, um, you know, client-centered uh, service for a while um, but in terms of actually working with the national program I worked with the paratriathlon team here as well uh, in Ireland for a couple of years and um, again more recently now working with the Irish um, soccer as I call it but football as you might call it uh, team as well so uh, you know a wide range there and again male and female uh, athletes as well uh, across those different sports so yeah I've, I guess I've got a, a few perspectives um, what's my favorite sport to work with uh, Depends on what you're what you're asking about because it, it's very different. Um, you know, in an endurance sport, uh, you have people who are just completely focused on on numbers. In my experience, you know, they're really focused on, in fact, maybe too focused on the gram by gram detail of everything that they're they're going to eat. And, no idea what you're talking about use. at all. Zero idea. <laughs> <laughs> in team sport, then you've got a, a very different uh, vibe, which is that. Um, you walk into a, a group, let's say, of 30 individuals, and it's just, a, it's a quite a different mix of, um, well, first of all, uh, backgrounds in terms of their, um, either their intelligence around being able to understand some of the concepts or their motivation around um, how much of what you advise them they're going to put into play. Um, they have individual barriers uh, to what they um, can actually achieve. Again, uh, some of it is logistical, some of it's financial, particularly in uh, amateur sports. Um, so it's a really different skill set um, that you need to employ between trying to implement change or, or improve practices in, say, an endurance sport versus versus a team sport. And um, again, I would have also noticed differences between, say, male and female sports. So um, there was a period of time where I was working with the Dublin hurling team and the um, Dublin ladies football team. And so you know, similar geographical location, similar sports, but again, um, often getting much, much greater buy-in from the female athletes than from, from the male athletes, you know, on average, you know, obviously there are differences from person to person, but again, quite a bit of difference there, just again, in, in the team sport environment. So, um, yeah, they're the, lear the learnings are ultimately that as a practitioner, you have to learn an awful lot of soft skills that aren't taught in, in the classroom and that, um, and there's a lot of trial and error like there's things i've tried that haven't worked and things i have tried that have worked and again it's just an iterative process um, and every time you start with a new team it's about getting to know the personalities and understanding um, what they understand and what the barriers are and facilitators and so on so um yeah i must catch up with david i saw you know david always talk david dunn always talks about behavior change and i really enjoy listening to his angle on that so it's uh, i'm looking forward to catching up with that episode but that's kind of, there's a huge component of, of uh, pra practices around behavior change, translating the information that's in scientific journals and into practice and trying to get that behavior change with, with the athletes. Yeah, I think it, it, we talked at, at length with him about this and like, why he went into his PhD right. into motivation. And like, he, it's funny, he said a lot of the similar things to you in terms of okay. endurance versus, uh, it's not a bad thing. It's, 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 you know, these things are common because they're common, right? You both said the same, the yeah, similar yeah. stuff because it's, it's often the reality in these, um, stereotype exists for a reason, right? The endurance athlete who's numbers obsessed mm. versus the team sport athlete who's like, well, whatever. Um, I've yeah. seen similar as well in, in strength and conditioning and nutrition to some degree of like some people, some of the blokes particularly just want to be told what to do. And some of them don't care anyway, mm. even if you, even if you give mm. them like you hand it to them, they're like, whatever. 
Uh, I found um, yeah. female athletes I've worked with to be much more engaged in that respect of wanting to know why and then buying in a lot more. Um, so it, it, I can. Interesting. Yeah, the, we, we actually just published a paper on uh, S&C coaches, attitudes and beliefs and experiences of, of coaching um, female versus male athletes. And that that uh, particular comment came up, which is, uh, you know, if you asked a, a male athlete to uh, run through a wall, he'd do it. A uh, female athlete would ask, why, why can't I just climb over it? You know? <laughs> so, or, you know, how, how can I climb over You know, so it's, it's like, like you say, it's a totally different detail orientation. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, and look, that, that's one of those uh, examples of, um, of where the, uh, the, the soft skills and, and, you know, knowledge and experience come into it. That's, again, at, at this moment in time, that type of information isn't really in the textbooks and, uh, you know, it's kind of being uh, the developers as we, as we move along. Yeah, for sure. And you, you mentioned a couple of things you tried that didn't work so well. Any favorite failures you've had where you just thought, geez, I, I wouldn't be doing that again? <laughs> Well, I tell you, I tell you, the, the first mistake I ever made was really my first presentation. Um, you know, I was uh, fairly green. I'd only just, uh, maybe I haven't even hadn't even graduated. It was maybe in the summer of my first year of having done the master's in sports nutrition. And I remember going to give a talk just to my local, because you know, and this again is maybe a piece of advice for for younger uh, graduates uh, that are out there. Is that you know, you just have to get experience anywhere at the start. And so I decided to do a piece of work with my uh, my local football team. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to appreciate the way the amateur game is in Ireland, but you're dealing with fairly um, you know, low level <laughs> facilities. But I was there on my laptop trying to give this talk in a, you know, in a dingy dressing room uh, in, in, in you know, rural Ireland. And uh, it was all numbers based. It was all like grams of this and calories of that and all, all this rubbish, really nonsense, because, you know, no one had a handle on it. And the example I always give is you can say eat 100 grams of carbohydrate, but if you asked... 100 athletes what 100 grams of carbohydrate is many of them would have no you know no ability to tell you i'd say the range would be phenomenal in terms of what they think it actually is so my big mistake was focusing on on numbers as opposed to focusing more on general patterns and general principles and uh, again most of what i what i do now initially is very much trying to educate around uh, general principles um not necessarily being overly prescriptive unless the athlete then wants to come and, and look for that piece. Um, but funny enough to, to close out that story. So I gave this talk and, you know, people started talking, about, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But we ended up losing our next couple of games. And uh, where we lived in, again, in rural Ireland, you know, the only thing that people are interested in is what the local football team are doing. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, Brendan Egan has come back from the UK with this uh, new diet. Sure, look what it's doing to our lads. <laughs> they're, losing, they're losing all their games. So uh, anyway, we, we did actually win the whole championship that year, but we went through a really rough patch. I don't know if it was, did everyone abandon the diet or what, but uh, again, of course, it wasn't a diet. It was just a couple of pieces of information, but uh, it was a lesson in, uh, in again, um, you know, what type of information is useful. And again, some of that whole thing about if you come and start with a team and, you know, or, or an individual and they don't get results straight away, it's very hard to get oh, you know, insane. Other lesson, yeah. It's a good example. I think it's why actually, I think it's why a lot of practitioners will often start with supplements because even though like, you know, with the best uh, kind of intentions, what you would want to start off with is good education, build up the base, the pyramid in terms of knowledges and practices around calories and macros, all the rest of it. You've kind of, I'm sure you've seen Eric Helms kind of nutritional uh, pyramid of nutrition priorities. I think that's a really good concept, but many practitioners will start with supplements because that's what athletes want to talk about a lot. Um, it's what they uh, often feel, you know, they get a caffeine hit or they get a beta alanine buzz or whatever. Um, and these are the types of things they can get by in initially, but 
you know, they're really they're the icing on the cake if you've got everything else sorted out. But you know, uh, that's one of those, um, you know, as I said, the the balance between the practitioner versus the academic hat in terms of in terms of how you practice. I actually want to ask you about that, Brendan. That balance because you've a couple of times now you've referred to not obsessing about numbers, but rather focusing on mm. general trends. Why is that? And when in your career, did you always believe that in your career? Was there some a, a turning point? Um, because, I mean, if you talk about team sports versus endurance sports, I can see the individual athlete obsessing about numbers because they got nothing to fall back on. It's up to them. Mm. In a team sport, you can sort of hide away a bit. You know, there is that option yeah. there where you just have to provide the bare minimum. But, yeah, I'm really interested in your experience of not obsessing mm. about the numbers, but rather following general trends. I can't say that there was a specific turning point. Um, I have to say, I I suppose that as I dealt with more and more individual athletes, um, so the so the example that I gave of kind of going into a team and talking about numbers, for example, again, I, I just realized very quickly that that didn't work, and it was better to talk about, you know, this this may seem kind of trivial right now, but back in the uh, in the uh, noughties and maybe even yeah up to the the teens there sometimes recovery wasn't really something that people thought about very much, you know, and even the more basic messages of, you know, we need to focus on recovery. And again, you can argue back and forth about post-exercise window of opportunity, whatever, whether it matters or not, but there's some element of, of uh, recovery that matters when it comes to nutrition. And even impressing that upon people wasn't, was a, something that you had to sell them rather than telling them specifically about, you know, two to one or three to one carb to protein ratio, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, I, I suppose that I could, yeah, like I say, it wasn't really a turning point. It was just an experience of over time of, you know, giving information, finding what people found interesting, what they found tangible in terms of putting into practice. I often did um, with, with every team that I worked with at the end of every season, I would do feedback um, surveys as such and find out what they found was useful, what they thought was, you know, what what benefits did they actually see, if any, and. And it was that kind of getting that feedback and looking at it and kind of evaluating and that began to sort of develop these um, different practices o- over time. And again, unless you're doing kind of self-reflection and unless you're capturing information from the athletes you work with, um, it's very hard to know, you know, whether you're uh, making a difference or how you can improve either as, as a practitioner. So, yeah, I would say, again, iterative process, not really a turning point per se. But um, when I when I then specifically began to work with endurance athletes, I became aware of the completely opposite end of things, which was give me the grand values, you know, uh, where's my food diary uh, report? And I noticed that I'm out by uh, 1% on that one. You know, what can I do about it? You know, that's, I, I'm kind of making a joke, but it's actually true. That's that's the way it goes. And like the amazing thing I used to find with, with the endurance athletes was that many of them underfueled. I think, I don't know if you've talked about this on the show before, but many of them did underfuel. And it was very hard to understand, was it a body composition or body image um, kind of issue? Or was it just a lack of appreciation of how many calories they burn? And, um, you know, the underfueling and, um, the, you know, inadequate protein intake was probably another big one as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, the numbers, uh, the numbers uh, became a major focus. Yeah, I think the, I mean, that's very common. That's We've seen that with any number of athletes we've worked with as a company. I mean, I've you see it individually, like even myself, like I'd go, mm. I think I talked to you at the conference said one of the biggest changes for me with mm. Super Sapiens was instead of a fasted three hour run on a Sunday, I started to- taking more carbs. And it like, that's, yeah. that's not, I mean, that's pretty low hanging fruit. It's, it's pretty basic, but yeah. there's this thought of I can, so it's fine versus mm. like it, maybe it's not optimal. 
right? And and then there's this, yeah. there's also like, and I've heard this on numerous high level runners talk about this saying things like, oh, I know I'm fit when I can get through a three hour run without taking anything. Like that's not, that's not <laughs> fit at all. Like that's just, you know, like, so it's kind of this, this mentality thing. I think, um, yeah, it's very different. Whereas if you speak to, and even trail runners, I see it as well. They're like, yeah, I, I sort of snack on something every like 45 minutes or an hour. I'm like, what? Mm. Like that's nowhere near enough. Um, and it makes a huge difference. So, yeah. but the protein thing, I think that endurance athletes probably mirror society, right? I think most people in society are probably under, probably under eating protein. Um, and yeah. It's it's a funny one because uh, again it all depends I suppose on your um, your frame of reference um, you know most of the people I'm around whether it's the researchers or the guys I play with or work with you know they're all very well versed on the importance of protein um, but I suppose when 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 I think about it um, again back back when I started first started uh, working as practitioner in fact the whole idea of say protein distribution well first of all uh, protein the protein quantity per day was still being debated at that point I mean people were still very much on the fence about whether we needed more than the RDA as, as athletes and again by, by the end of the noughties it was very clear that you know the, the needs were up toward 1.62 uh, grams per kg per day um but um the, the you know the how you implement change there like the one of the simplest things that i you know as soon as you start looking at food diaries of athletes back then it was they weren't they were never eating enough protein at breakfast and again whether you believe the protein distribution concept or not um the one of the easiest fixes is just to tell someone eat more protein at breakfast you know it'll either increase their protein intake overall uh and or it'll ch- change the protein distribution pattern and you know either way one or both of those things is, is generally a good thing when, when it comes to athletes so um that that again was one of those things where you get you know huge buy-in you recommend endurance athlete or team sport athlete eat a bit more protein at breakfast and all of a sudden they start talking about feeling better recovery having better mood, yeah, um, uh, energy levels throughout the day and it seems so simple now to people who are very familiar with the concept but for people who aren't it, it makes a huge difference um and uh, yeah again like i said i noticed that across uh, different athletes of different domains and it's it often came back as a feedback at you know those end of end of session end of season surveys as well can you can you just explain that to me quickly as yeah. the dummy on the call why oh, sorry. Okay. why would you have protein um at breakfast because my thinking i understand that then they then you ensure you get close to your daily intake what you need but mm-hmm. my thinking is oh you're probably training that day you need carbs why would you have protein yeah. at breakfast can you explain that to me okay it's a great question um how far back do I do I go? Um, so, I suppose again, there's a kind of a hierarchy of, of importance when it comes to to protein needs, and uh, you know, there's generally this uh, value first of all that people will place in the grams per grams per kg body mass of protein needed per day. And for anyone who trains, I think it's widely accepted now it's at least 1.2. But again, it's even for endurance athletes now, people are talking about 1.6 grams per kg uh, of body mass per day strength trained and um, and bodybuilding type athletes it's above you know two or above um so it's you know it's kind of scales upwards but then there becomes a practical question which is how do you get that protein um in across the day and i think it's fairly intuitive that it's not sensible just to eat it all as one meal um and be a lot of protein first of all um, and totally impractical but many people when you look at food diaries whether it's in general population or whether it's in athletes what you see is yeah so they eat uh, very little at breakfast they eat uh, a little bit more at lunchtime and they may if they have a say an evening training session they may eat protein before or after that and then and a dinner as well so on average there's like three three main eating occasions as we call them possibly 
one or two snacks again depending on the individual and when you look at the um, amount that's eaten in each um, of those eating occasions it's skewed as they say which means like i said less at breakfast a little more at lunch and much more at dinner so the whole concept of protein distribution or uh, kind of revolves around this idea that there might be an, an anabolic threshold so to speak at each meal that there's a certain amount of protein that is ideal or optimal in terms of stimulating a growth or recovery um, or repair response and then when you go above that it's not that the uh, protein um, can't be used by the body but it's just that it's not um, optimal for stimulating so-called muscle protein synthesis so the um again the the practicality of that really is that it's it's and the way it's kind of laid out in practice is that if your target is you know 160 grams of protein per day based on your your weight and that you know 1.6 to 2 grams per kg body mass um, value then if you break that into four eating occasions it works out at roughly 40 grams uh, per eating occasion um but again if you were to look at it at a food diary most people might have something like 10 you know 10 30 40, 90, or I think that's 160 there. Um, and so the idea there is you take some of that evening protein and you move it towards earlier in the day, and that gives you the evening protein distribution. So what would I say about that? I think in practice, that's a, re that's a good strategy um, to kind of spread it evenly throughout the day. If someone said to me, you know, evidence-based practice, does protein distribution make a difference in terms of adaptation to training, recovery from exercise, and so on? You would have to say that there's you know, evidence there when these uh, lab-based studies have used isolated protein powders, you know, so that's the scientist speaking, you know, the practitioner wants to know, you know, is it yogurt, is it meat, is it tofu, is it, you know, whatever the, the protein source is, how much is it throughout the day, what are the size of those portions, and does that make a difference in the long run? And, it, you know, studies aren't going to be done that, that actually answer those types of questions. So again, we just have to use our best judgment. And um, I, I just think as, as a concept, in terms of you know creating anchors within the day and good practices within the day i think the idea of telling an athlete about even protein distribution you know a decent size of portion at breakfast and particularly the reason i think that's useful from practice is that many of the athletes i work with train in the evening time and they may finish their training session around about 9 p.m they will have a, a recovery meal as such at that point but I think it's not unreasonable to say that, you know, 12 hours later, 9 a.m., they're still in recovery mode as such, particularly if they've played a game, a match, or if they've had a really intense session. And in that case, they, they do need protein at that time, and a decent amount of it if we, if we believe the whole um, recovery paradigm there. So, um, yeah, I know I've gone on a little bit there, but that's kind of the overall rationale as to why we kind of place that emphasis on, on protein overall distribution and, and, uh, and again, on a food-based um, recommendations as well. No, that's that's super helpful, and I think it's pretty clear. Uh, Zion will be the judge there. It's one of his key roles in this podcast is to like make sure it's not just me uh, me nerding out. Um, I think yeah. it's interesting you mentioned that. I think uh, there's a couple of things I've, I've used that similar paradigm with vegetables for a while with athletes who, who can't get enough vegetables mm. in. Is like try and eat one to two mm. vegetables at breakfast. I think that makes a huge yeah. difference to people when you consider yeah. that yeah. in a similar thing. Um, Great point. And yeah, I just to not have any protein at breakfast. Like I, I just your breakfast will be healthier because this is the thing that people I think misunderstand in this whole macronutrient debate is that you don't just add something. you often remove something. Mm. So if I'm asking you to mm. add protein at breakfast, you're going to cut or you're going to remove something else out um, yeah. somewhere else, maybe not at breakfast, but later in the day. And generally that's mm. going to be a healthier shift. Um, if we, and again, it's this whole 
paradigm that I've been using for a while is like, let's, let's add things in rather than trying to remove them from a psychological point of view. So if you want to, mm-hmm. you know, if, if people talk to me about, you know, body weight composition or, you know, so body composition changes, it's usually like, Hey, hit your protein goals, hit your vegetable goals, and then mm. eat whatever you want after that. And if you can do that and then still eat over consume something else, then we can have a discussion. But if you can focus on adding more vegetables and more protein, you generally find it crowds out other stuff that that'll help yeah, you. I agree. And I think the the thing that I find with athletes, and this is now moving into the kind of personal experience slash anecdote realm, is that um, when you give them this focus on protein at breakfast, um, whether it's uh, you know a placebo around appetite or whether it's um, a focus on so-called doing the right thing or whatever, they tend to um, snack less or or reach for the not reach I should say for the um, the junk food sort of in that mid-morning period. And I know the, the the research actually is, the research is very mixed, I think, around protein at breakfast and its effects on, on appetite because, again, maybe it'd be worth talking to um, someone who can be more well-versed in this, but when you look at the difference between studies that say measure um, appetite hormones versus measure um, consumption of a meal versus consumption of at a buffet, like there's lots of different ways of, of getting at this question. And so I think the, the evidence is quite mixed from that point of view as to whether protein impacts on, on those outcomes. But my experience, again, is, is working with athletes. And again, this is maybe, let's say, sub-elite because, you know, they're not being provided all of their meals. These are people who have to prepare their own meals at breakfast. They maybe go to an office and then they're having their lunch at some point. And that 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 breakfast to lunch period is actually where there can be a lot of bad habits, you know, pastries, sweets, treats, all the kind of stuff that oftentimes you're, you're trying to have them avoid. So that idea where they have more protein at breakfast, um, uh, that tends to be uh, lead to better behaviors, let's say, from 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 that side of things. And um, again, like you said, just on that point about you're replacing something, people often ask, well, what does, what you know, as you said, a breakfast with very low protein, what could that look like? Well, some people just have toast and butter or toast and jam, you know, and, and out the door. Uh, or, you know, they, they eat a couple of bits of fruit and, and off they go. And uh, or they have a cereal bar because that's recommended by whatever, you know, so they've been caught by the marketing hype. So there's lots of uh, so-called breakfasts that, that are going to be low in protein. And, you know, then what are the sort, you know, you're talking about bringing in things like a high protein yogurt, smoked salmon, um, you eggs. know, it could be a eggs is another one yeah so like there's lots of there's lots of uh, variations and using those different ingredients yeah. or even I just take offense to, to you calling a, a pastry a bad habit i think it's a good habit man <laughs> <laughs> depends what you're trying to achieve i guess <laughs> it's a good habit if you want an enjoyable morning don't get me wrong yeah, yeah. If, uh, you're going for a, a coffee uh, a pastry is going to be a good compliment yeah. for an enjoyable morning but maybe not so much for for natalie so. That's awesome. That's super helpful. I, I'm really happy we've had someone on this podcast as pro-protein as I am. So uh, thank you for that, Brendan. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, you shared a, a paper with me a little while ago, kindly. Um, this absolute monster review um, that I'm still getting mm. through uh, called <laughs> Molecular Responses to Acute Exercise and Their Relevance to a- for Adaptations in Skeletal Muscle to Exercise Training. Um Look, that's a mouthful. I don't expect uh, people to go to look at the paper, but it, it's a cool paper in terms of, firstly, it was huge and a, a large amount of work, but I'm interested in some of the takeaways here for the athlete and what they may sort of look at and go like, oh, that's actually helpful because I think you did a really good job there with looking at that. Yeah, like um, if you if you finish that paper, then you may become the only person to have read it, uh, apart from me and Adam, <laughs> the, uh, the authors, because uh, 
you know, there's, there's people often say that uh, they're not sure how many people read their papers, but when you write a, a paper that's uh, 40,000 words um, and, you know, 1,200 references, I can be sure that not many people will, will read it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, all joking aside, I suppose, um, you know, it, it, the idea is that it, it was written in a style that we hope um, is readable. And it's kind of didactic in the way that it moves from um, kind of the history of molecular exercise science through to exercise metabolism and the response to say well we tried again to incorporate both strength training and um, uh, endurance type events uh, or, or training and then on down into the molecular pathways and at the end trying to bring it back together in terms of, of future directions um for natalie what can they take from it i suppose the um there's a lot of information there in terms of of um, molecular regulation of of adaptation to exercise i mean that's that's the theme of, of the paper and like i said that was the area that i got into coming into my phd and postdoc and, and early part of my, my academic career and oftentimes the question is what is the practical relevance because to me, that, that whole, the, everything we discussed in that paper is really the groundwork for where the things like uh, low-carb training comes in, where altitude training comes in, um, where heat or cold exposure comes in. Because when, when um, practitioners uh, are using those types of modalities to try and either enhance recovery or enhance adaptation, it's those molecular pathways that they're really modifying. Um, now, again, uh, a practitioner might say the molecular pathways don't matter. I just want to know if it works. Uh, and, you know, that that is that is um, uh, true as well. I, as I said, when I wear my practitioner hat, I'd be thinking the same thing. But um, in terms of um, where those pathways come become useful, it's that sometimes it can be hard to do longer term studies where you apply these types of modalities over weeks and months and even years to try and see what, what changes they would bring about. And we use surrogate measures. You know, we use these molecular markers or these blood-based markers to see, to kind of get a, a kind of an indirect measure as to whether any of the intervention or, or, um, or you know, again, like I said, these recovery modalities have an effect. And I think it's, it's um, if you don't understand, say, what the, let's say, the usual response would be um, and understand what those changes are going to bring about from an adaptive uh, point of view, you can't really make judgments on, on whether any of these recovery modalities or uh, altered nutrition uh, states can, can have their effects. So I think that's where, that's where the value is, is, um, you know, as, a, as understanding it as a framework of how the body adapts to exercise. Uh, so how it responds acutely, how those acute responses then influence adaptation and knowing that then you can look more carefully at these types of manipulations, nutrition or environmental um, that can either enhance adaptation or, or improve um, recovery. Can you talk about um, some of the work you've done in weight cutting in weight category sports? And what were some of your findings there? Yeah, that was an interesting uh, line of work that started um, three or four years ago now at this stage. There was a, a PhD student working in my group, John Connor, and John had um, and had and does work with a variety of athletes in different combat sports. And uh, he came up to me with this idea, which was, um, you know, everyone's using different ways of, of cutting weight. Um, there's a lot of controversy about whether it's healthy or unhealthy. Um, there's, a, again, controversy about whether it actually benefits performance in terms of that rate, weight regain phase. That's not an area we got into, but um, and that, that's an area that's, that's kind of hot in, in this domain. Um, but John's specific interest was that he was uh, doing some work at the time with MMA and, uh, and jiu-jitsu athletes, and they were uh, practicing this thing known as, as uh, salt bats or hot, hot bats. 
And really the, the method there was that these athletes would lie in a, in a hot bath. Usually if they were at a weigh-in and um, they would be in a hotel, for example, they would just have the hotel bath filled with hot water and they would have the room, the air conditioning on the room, a really hot room outside. And they would literally lie in the bath until they couldn't tolerate it anymore, go out into the hot room, lie under blankets until they you know, kind of cooled down a bit, got back into the hot bath. And the idea was just that it increased the amount of sweating that was taking place and allowed them to, to cut weight. Now, again, to take a step back, in principle, all we're talking about here is dehydration. We're talking about losing weight. Um, rapidly through dehydration in order to be able to, to make weight um, in these in these weight category sports. But what we were interested in was was kind of twofold. One was that if you applied just a very um, um, uh, consistent diet approach, what effect could that have in, say, 24 hours? And the diet approach we were using there was a low-carbohydrate, low-calorie, low-fiber um, diet combined with fluid restriction, which is, uh, you know, it, it sounds extreme, but it's actually relatively straightforward to implement. And over the course of, of 24 hours, we consistently saw that these athletes would lose around about 2% um, of, of their of their body mass. And then when we implemented this two-hour protocol around, essentially what they would do is they would be in the bath for, for 20 minutes, and then they would be under blankets for 40 minutes. We saw another 1.5% to 2% um, being lost. And we did this across three different studies. And again, uh, consistent findings across all three studies, which was that using this diet and using this hot bath protocol, we got fairly consistent around about three to 4% um, loss in body mass. That's a huge amount to lose in a, in a short period of time um, in a manner that we would consider to be safe because there's nothing really too extreme going on there. Now, the criticism, of course, uh, you could say about the work was that, well, in the real world, they've done you know an eight to 12 week camp where they've lost body mass anyway, they come in, they're already, you know, on a low carbohydrate diet. So then this last 24 hours might not produce the same amount in those athletes. And then if they're already dehydrated for the week leading up to to uh, to about, and then you try to get them to sweat further in either a sauna or a hot bath, that, uh, that that won't have the same effect. But at least in our hands, again, if you're talking about someone who just needs to lose three to four percent of, of their body mass, there's a fairly, um, what we think anyway, is reproducible way of doing that just by fairly simple dietary manipulation and a little bit of, uh, well, a little bit. Was, I, I, I didn't do it, so I just say a little bit of sweating, but of course, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty severe when you see their, their, their faces. But, yeah. Yeah. The, the one, the, one uh, the novel angle as well that we took was that people were using these, uh, was, were using salt um, in the bath. And um, again, it's probably, it'll take me a long time to go through. There, there's several different reasons as, as to why salt may work to extract more water, uh, let's say, fr from the body. But uh, the three different manipulations of salt that we undertook didn't really produce um, any effect. Yet, when you look at, um, there's a couple of studies back in the uh, like 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, these kind of random studies you find back there. And the kind of indirect looks at this question, but very high salt um, um, concentrations probably could almost, through osmosis even, pull out a little bit more fluid out of, of the body, but you would have to be lying in a bath for several hours. Um, and that's not what we were looking at. We were looking at more like short term uh, responses. But I actually found it to be a fascinating area. And um, it might come like if you're looking at my CV, all of a sudden it comes out of left field that we're doing it. But to be honest, if I find if a talented student comes along with good ideas and they can do good research, um, I'm happy to get on board and sort of be their guide and their mentor as such. And I love learning about new things anyway. So it was nice to get up to speed with that whole area um, and it's a it's a fascinating area hopefully we can still continue to do some more work there in the future 
I wish I had uh, more lecturers like you. I might have actually gone down a research pathway. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting. Like, I think that's a like just to comment on a couple of things. Like, the the whole salt might pull a couple of percentage more off. Like, yeah, maybe. But mm. then yeah, they've also dehydrated. So the same argument that goes against your protocol is the same argument that doesn't work for the like. Let's use high salt. But um, I also think it's if you've got a really easy quantifiable way to say, listen, we can do 4% in 24 hours, your targets yeah. become different. Then at 20, the 24 hour mark, you need to be roughly 4% off where you need to be and you know what you can do. So it's, it's a bit of a backwards argument there, but I guess probably the reason I brought this up aside from morbid curiosity, because I love this stuff is, um, <laughs> I, you know, we have weight, you've worked with endurance athletes, they're weight obsessed because mm. uh, of power yeah. to weight ratios in cycling and cycling and all sorts of stuff that, mm. It's a little bit backwards and, and we, I wrote a blog article on this um, talking about race weight and it's just, we're not efficient machines. So it's not, it's not a linear thing, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, is there some stuff that you would say based on this, you would, you would look at from an insurance athlete point of view or is it, I mean, it sounds like it's probably not a lot of relevance there aside from, Hey, listen, fluctuations in glycogen are going to be a couple of kilograms. Uh, make sure you're hydrated and crack on and don't worry if you put on some weight actually in your carbohydrate loading phase, but um, is there anything else you might say to them in terms of? I, I actually think that's a that's a great point because, um, and I see this all the time as well. Like, I mean, um, people's weight will fluctuate from morning to evening and from day to day, and some of it is going to be, as you say, it can be glycogen, so it can be dependent on the amount of carbohydrate within their diet, or it can be just their hydration status fluctuating from from morning to evening. Uh, and again, if they've done a session the previous day or um, earlier in the day and so on. So I think it, it highlights the fact that um, percentage fluctuations in, in body weight are actually quite common and relatively easy to um, for them to happen and, and to then replace them. So one of the things I should have mentioned is that in, in a sport like MMA, you've again, in, in professional MMA, you've got about a 30 to 36 hour recovery window where you can rehydrate. Um, if you look at something like uh, some of the jiu-jitsu, for example, or powerlifting, oftentimes they're weight category sports, but oftentimes they will compete within a couple of hours of, of their weigh-in. So what you end up seeing is that you get very different approaches. You In, in say, powerlifting and, and jiu-jitsu, they tend to be closer to their uh, fighting weight, uh, sorry, their, their, their weight class, um, you know, a couple of days leading into it, whereas MMA guys could, could be losing 10% in total over that last seven to 10 days. Um and I, I, you know, professional boxers round about the same thing as well. So, um, so, th so that 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 whole element of kind of manipulation of body mass and, and how readily it can be manipulated, and you know how then readily it can be recovered. You know that that that's a, a kind of a useful lesson just from that combat sport um, domain. But to your question about endurance athletes, uh, the, uh, the, there probably isn't any direct relevance other than, as we just said there, about the, the just to be aware that body weight goes up and down you know, quite quite um, easily. But uh, one of the points that we often have to use as a counterpoint when people talk about um, uh, rapid weight loss in, in combat sports is that in endurance sports, particularly in marathon, you know, you've got the best marathoners in the world are losing 6 7 8% um during the marathon in terms of percentage of, of body mass so there are and no one talks about the fact that this is detrimental to uh, to their health so you know okay in, in combat sports we may have them at that level of dehydration for a longer period of time you know it could be 24 hours or something like that but acutely losing that amount of, of body mass may not necessarily be a problem um 
again, there's a group that are interested in this idea that it could cause acute kidney injury to be that dehydrated and to be competing in the heat. And uh, that's something we definitely want to want to take a look at as well. So we have a study uh, in the works at the moment that will just look at essentially look at kidney health and metabolic rate in, in X MMA fighters to see if there's any residual effects there. So that should be an interesting study to try and get at that question as well. Yeah. And you see, depending on what markers you want to use, you may see some of those markers being high in endurance athletes as well, similar to cardiac stress markers, right? They can both be high at the end of a marathon. So, uh, Well, so exactly that. So you, on one hand, you've got, you know, plasma volume expansion as one of the adaptations to endurance training. So that would be a, maybe a dilution of some of these biomarkers. But at the, on the other hand, you've got hemoconcentration that occurs with dehydration. You've got plasma volume shifts and so on during acute exercise. So then you get elevations in these markers as well. So it's, uh, again, to answer these questions well, you know, it does take a fairly rigorous approach in terms of the amount of measurements you do and the choice of measurements and biomarkers. So I think there's a lot more work to be done in, in, in that domain. And those those marathoners are also losing glycogen, right? And liberating water mm-hmm. as a result. And this is something that people yeah. are bad at understanding as well. It's like you're burning glycogen, which frees water. Mm-hmm. So yes, mm-hmm. you're sweating and losing water and you've lost, say, 6% of your body weight. But we don't know how much of that is true. You're not 6% dehydrated. You're yeah. a percentage less than that dehydrated. We don't know exactly what that will be, but um, it's a it's a complex physiology that people don't really appreciate, but you also, yeah, t- cause most, most often we're measuring uh, body mass yeah. as a fairly, you know, uh, but we're not measuring plasma volume or, or changes in, you know, hemoglobin and hematocrit, which are, you know, that's the gold standard for measuring um, our plasma osmolality as well. So yeah. these are measures that aren't, aren't often accounted for. Yeah. And just to double underscore something that might've gone unsaid about these fighters, you mentioned a low fiber diet and there's mm-hmm. a low fiber diet. And, and this will underscore the, the fallacy of body weight a little bit, will mean that you have, you know, crudely speaking, less feces, less poop, mm. right? And that's mm. the whole goal is you have less weight that is in your bowels. So, yeah, I would I would guess that that could be a kilo uh, yeah. or a percent, you know, somewhere around that um, for most individuals. If you go on a low residue diet for 24 to 48 hours, um, yeah, you simply empty the bowels and it's actually a significant amount of, of weight in that context. Remember, 100 grams is a lot of weight in that context because they have to make weight. Um, but we're talking about, you know, several hundred grams up to a kilo, I would guess, um, for individuals who are already on, who, who eat a mixed diet. You know, obviously, if someone eats a you know fairly crappy diet and they don't have much fiber in their diet, going to an even lower fiber diet is not going to make the uh, much of an effect. But um yeah, it has the potential to be quite impactful. And maybe there's something in that for, for endurance athletes, you know, if they were to, um, you know, have a less gut contents, maybe that would uh, help them. I don't know what the practices are of, of, um, of the elite uh, guys, but it's kind of that, uh, how do you thread the needle of trying to have a low residue diet, but also have a high carbohydrate diet? You know, then you're beginning to rely on really simple sugars for, you know, let's say 24, 48 hours. In my experience, personally, and working with athletes, that doesn't actually feel good um so you know you're in a you're in a kind of a tricky position there trying to as i said trying to thread that needle a lot of them are doing that in at least from what i've read through the research the suggestion that they're doing that in terms of uh acute loading protocols rather than these sort of three to five day carb loading protocols doing a 24 to 36 hour protocol and then to hit mm. those numbers you need like gummy bears and i've heard stories yeah. of people putting like fructose syrup on on rice and like that sort of yeah. stuff going really low residue and again for gi risk as well the, the one fun fact there is that you know obviously the morning poop is what everyone's worried about not hitting that um <laughs> because they worry about going but there's also there was an article released recently looking at so i think it was sub elite or elite triathletes and morning defecation helping uh cerebral blood flow uh and therefore right. improving performance so um 
yeah i'll put it in the show notes for people the thing is again like again it's about different contexts like with, with team sport athletes that i'm working with rarely are we looking for anything more than six or seven grams per kg of body mass of, of carbohydrate where you have endurance athletes who are going eight ten twelve you know so it becomes very different and you know with, with uh fueling up for for team sports we're off you know i often don't call it carb loading because you know i'm afraid someone's going to google carb loading and come back with you know a thousand gram carbohydrate diet for themselves but um usually off you know it's it's a tweak sometimes in terms of um i actually would be doing things like getting them to cut back on fibrous um carbohydrates so you know day before a game i'd be saying you know not sweet potatoes just baby potatoes are fine you don't need you know jumbo oats you can just use quick cook oats you know you're kind of making small changes like that that allows them still to eat relatively low well low fiber carbohydrate sources but still get in let's say whole foods in in, in that way so um, yeah small tweaks like that can can, can work um should we move on to exogenous ketones uh you've done uh, extensive research in that field i think am i correct to say we've started covering this more on the podcast and it's becoming more prevalent to me am i just noticing it more because we're talking <laughs> about it and it's like you mean you're in the market for you know a certain car you see that car on the road all the time um or is yeah, it yeah. becoming more the usage becoming more prevalent it's funny because it reminds me of something with my my wife. I was trying to explain to her over the weekend about a filter bubble she was in around. I can't remember what the topic was, but it was something that was being driven by social media. And I said, I'll give an example of when we first started working with ketones. And this is this is going back about four or five years now at this stage. But Mark Evans was the PhD student on the project. And someone was like visiting our lab and they said, you know, what, what do you think is the hottest thing in ketones at the moment? And Mark said, or the hottest thing in sports nutrition at the moment? And Mark goes, ah, oh, it's definitely ketones. <laughs> and I was thinking, is it, or are we just completely obsessed with this right now? And that's all we're thinking about. That's all we're seeing. And yeah, we were in our own filter bubble, but um, it's hard to know whether it's, uh, whether you're, whether it's more prevalent or not. I, I think the, the companies who are in the ketone space are um, much more um, visible around um, sponsorship of podcasts, for example, um, their athletes are now talking a little bit more openly about using them. Um, there's a, there's several companies now in that space as well. Um, and they're aggressively marketing things. So I, I think the ketone research is, has been, you know, there was, you know, six years ago, there was next to nothing and it kind of ramped up over two to three years. And I think it's been fairly steady for the last uh, two to three years in terms of numbers of papers. Uh, coming out in in the in the sports area, um, so it's probably a mix of again a bit of marketing, a bit of you know athletes talking about it more often, and then just the research is kind of just a steady flow now. I think in terms of papers that are coming out. And I guess without wanting to ask the most broad question in the world, where are you at with it? What do you what do you think here? And and sort of, um, I mean, you've done a lot of the research in this field. To, to be clear, like you, you've you probably account for a, a percentage that's. Uh, not insignificant. I, I won't put a number on it, but I, I would say if mm. people have been reading the research, they've read something you've written. Yeah, so we published a big, um, a big review late last year in Sports Medicine, and um, I think that is the most up to date review in terms of where things are at in terms of athletic performance. And the summary really is that there are a couple of papers that show benefits um, for ketone supplements when it comes to endurance performance. Um, there are many, um, got to be close to 15, I would say, that show null effects. And again, a couple that show negative effects. Um, and the negative effects seem to be consistent around um, high intensity, short duration um, performance. Um, 
the the begs the question then why is there why is there hype and um my point is my my viewpoint really is that even though so the the, the you know obviously we as you say we've we've done a couple of studies in this space uh, Peter Hespel's group and and KU Leuven have done a lot of work in this area as well and both groups i think um have tried their best to use uh, study designs that you know mimic real world competition and, and performance um but at the same time and we've tried to use good quality athletes but at the same time we haven't used elite elite athletes and one of the things that um is just nagging away uh, with my group and people i talk to about this is that um clearly there are people who are using ketone supplements um in professional sport and again if you believe the um some of the stories that come out of um for example tour cycling um it seems like a lot of people are using them um now, are they using them for as an ergogenic aid, as we would describe it? So like in a race or pre-race, you know, to bring about a performance benefit, or are they using them more along the lines of what Peter's uh, group had shown, which is this idea of uh, recovery and um, blunting of the overtraining response that would occur during a, a three-week event? I, th- I think it's unclear, really. Um, there was an interesting shot uh, a few, well, it was during the Giro d'Italia where Remco um, was drinking a ketone drink on camera just before he was interviewed about winning the the, the time trial. So clearly he was using it for re- recovery in, in that way. And again, it's 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 uh, it's we're kind of piecing this all together really in terms of the anecdotes from the tour and in professional cycling in particular. Um, whereas again, across other sports, you hear an awful lot of anecdotal stuff, you know, coming from social media of people using different ketone products. And a lot of the stuff I find very hard to believe. You know, when people talk about certain ketone salt products or butane diol or these other varieties of, of exogenous ketone supplements, they're li- unlikely to be doing very much to um, blood ketone concentrations. Um, and they're likely to have side effects as well, as opposed to the so-called keto monoester, which is the one that um, that you had Brian McMahon talking a, a few weeks ago. Um, that's the one that is really uh, reproducible in terms of you know, robust increase in, in ketone concentrations. And, you know, they're, they're, if there's any performance benefits, they're probably associated with that particular product rather than any of the others. Um, but like I say, very, very mixed at this stage. And um, yeah, my feeling is just that I, I wonder, have we tested ketones in the right conditions um, with the right athletes? You know, it's, it's just very hard to understand, given, again, the review that we wrote, how, how little evidence there is for benefits, yet how much anecdote there is around uh, professional athletes who, who say they find benefits so it's yeah I, i'm 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 pretty open-minded about this i'm not i'm not neither side of the fence at this stage yeah it's uh it's also hard to blind them because they taste putrid so you can't really <laughs> you can't really blind athletes it's like they know um i remember doing uh my in my undergrad exercise science doing a, like a trying to do a placebo test on caffeine and we gave coffee and, and decaf and like the athlete knew she was yeah. like yes yeah, it's decaf <laughs> So we, uh, it's it's funny. One of the things that uh, is often, well, no, it's not. It's it's a part of the uh, the present guidelines, which are uh, they're a set of guidelines that uh, researchers should adhere to when they're reporting on um, um, sports nutrition projects, performance nutrition projects. Is that you do assess the so-called success of blinding, and um, the way to do that is you know you obviously when the athlete finishes their final part of the uh, of the of the testing program, you ask them which trial or which condition or which drink do they think was the you know, in this case, uh, placebo or ketone. So 
people have they haven't been too bad um, at, at telling the difference. Um, it's kind of been mixed. I, I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent successful, but it's not useless either. And I don't have we have we talked about what we use for the no. PC? I was about to ask because now I'm interested. <laughs> So um, I have to credit uh, Brianna Stubbs uh, with this, uh, with recommending this. So um, she uh, developed a, 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 a mix. It was um, malic acid, which gives a kind of an acidic taste to it. Uh, arrowroot extract, which gives a bit of kind of a texture mouthfeel to to the uh, placebo. And then the, the um, you know, the uh, putrid taste, let's say, we use, um, again, I, it all depends on the country you're in as to whether you uh, know this, but in Ireland, uh, we have this uh, nail polish that you you put on child's on um, baby's fingers to stop them biting their nails. I, I know this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I actually now off the top of my head now the the chemical name is escaping me, but Bitrex is 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 the product uh, that we use, and um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's disgusting enough to stop kids from uh, from biting their nails. But again, we use it. It's a very very low amount. It's uh, it's like 0.0008% of, of solution is this actual, this, um, this uh, agent, but it's enough to put a fairly rotten taste. So ultimately what we, what we end up with is two really bad tasting drinks and, uh, you know, people know that they should taste bad. So, you know, it's uh, hopefully that, that uh, convinces them or sorry, uh, um, uh, covers up the, uh, whether it's placebo or not. That's awesome. Yeah. Brian is, <laughs> Brian is very generously sent um, David and I some ketones. I've never taken them before. I haven't used them. Um, when I get back to South Africa, I will. And David said to me, please make me a promise. When you use them for the first time, make sure you're filming yourself and send me that video. <laughs> so I still owe you that. So we, we actually, uh, very early on, this is back in about 2016 or 17, we um, were testing an unflavored version. And um, you know that was that was so bad, it was unbelievable. Um, I remember trying it out for myself, going back to what I talked about at the, at the start, testing out these things myself. I um, I didn't want the guys that I was playing football with to see me drinking this kind of. It was coming out of a test tube, like it wasn't even a labeled uh, little drink or anything. So so I, I went into the uh, into the cubicle in the dressing rooms to, to throw back the shot, and I mean. <laughs> threw it back and I was just like oh! you, could, you could have just heard me <laughs> I'd say they thought I was having diarrhea and then the toilet but no no it was actually uh, just my reaction to uh, to drinking them but anyway the, the, the flavour in fairness has improved the, the flavoured versions are I actually think they're, they're fine now but uh, when the first time people taste them I think they're, they're taking it back but um, yeah but the, the one thing I'll say no, just to, just to go back to a serious note I mean uh, beta hydroxybutyrate you know the ketone body that circulates most um most um, abundantly within the circulation i mean it's a really powerful molecule as you would expect for for something that's produced you know largely in response to uh, starvation or, or lack of food intake um so it's not surprising for example that there's all of these uh, animal studies cell studies plausible mechanisms as to why beta-hydroxybutyrate can have effects in various different organ systems and again outside of the uh, performance domain there's a huge amount of research um, around things like heart failure, cognition, like, I mean, very diverse um, areas. And again, as I said, all pointing in the direction that something something is happening. You know, these are, like I said, it's a powerful molecule, so it, is, it, is, uh, it can do things, you know, in different organ systems. And it's just a case of really harnessing what that might be from a therapeutic point of view. Um, whether it proves to be cost-effective, again, that's, that's a whole other question. Um, and then in the athletic domain, again, you know, we, at the moment, so we've moved on to trying to, look at ketones in very long duration activity you know i think that's the piece that might just be missing at the moment but um 
again, Ireland is a small place. Um, it's very hard to get people to come in and run on a treadmill staring at a wall for more than three hours. So, um, you know, it's uh, that's going to be the challenge to get that type of work done. You'll have to just put out, like, make it a race. Set some race up around <laughs> Ireland. All the crazy endurance athletes will come and you just, yeah, by the way, you have to be part of the study. Um, oh, no, we, we've, talk, we've talked a lot about, you know, could we get a group of ultra endurance athletes to do some simulated races just even on a track? Because, again, with these... I don't want to go into the weeds too much on study design here, but in terms of trying to control confounders like uh, the ambient temperature, the humidity, uh, wind conditions, all that, as soon as you go outdoors and you start start trying to simulate races, you begin to lose some of that control. Yeah. And if we're looking to try and find one to two percent differences um, between um, you know placebo and active compound, you know as soon as those types of confounders begin to come into it, it's it's difficult to detect. So uh, we're we're tossing ideas around a lot in terms of what the best way to look at this will be. And again, Peter's group, Peter Espel's group, has just published a paper um, uh, earlier this year uh, around an ultra endurance race uh, and using ketones. And the performance data in that uh, particular paper is kind of hidden away, but the um, the you know they focus more on the cognition and and that demand but um again it'd be nice to do those types of studies in a controlled crossover design control for the confounder etc cetera, etc cetera. but again it's going to be hard to get those done unfortunately and you mentioned something when we were organizing this around publishing uh on running economy is that data available mm. at the moment or not yet no it's, it's not uh, it's still not published still under review um well I'll either, uh, I'll just say fingers crossed because whenever this podcast come out, it could have either egg on my face or it could be accepted. So it's, it's hard to know. But uh, yeah, the, the, uh, just to say very briefly, what we essentially looked at was the effect of ketones alone versus carbohydrate alone versus carbohydrate plus ketone. Um, so that was the, the three conditions. And we were just interested in running economy in middle and long distance runners. Um, and what we see um, pretty clearly is that running economy is improved in the ketone only condition compared to carbohydrate and the carbohydrate plus ketone condition is, is somewhere in between. Um, so, yeah, I think we have a couple of steps still to um, get over if hurdles to get over to get that published. But um, the question will obviously come out then, you know, is this a meaningful effect? You know, is, is this effect on running economy something that's, um, uh, going to result in in a performance benefit because again what the and some of the criticisms uh, justifiably in some ways from the reviewers are but what is the point in studying just ketones alone because aren't people going to use carbohydrate anyway and so you know right. my response to that is well we're just trying to generate hypothesis at this stage this is just a, a look to see what's going on so um and maybe maybe there's something in it maybe there's not again i'm, I'm fairly um um, on the fence about that but you know those are the data that we have to hand now so let's let's see what happens this is why i left academia is reviewer number two <laughs> reviewer number two saying things like oh wouldn't they just use carbohydrates it's like well the goal is not to make them choose the goal is to tell them what the difference is and they've obviously never met endurance athletes there was a guy who did some ridiculous race with ketones only like these things happen all yeah. the time people are doing this stuff there's no question about it um i can what I, I think we emailed a bit about this before this podcast brendan but I, i've definitely seen those results mirrored in a lot of my data playing around with mm. ketones uh, looking at heart rate responses rpes in response to running but again i can't blind myself and similarly i've played with using a mixture of um ketones and carbohydrates and found some really interesting responses there like a real dampening of the glucose response uh mm. and a real sort of stabilizing effect as well so um yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we head in the space and trying to find titrate to get the optimal dosing, right? Because one of the things we asked Brian, and I think you listened to that podcast, was how do you dose these things, right? Because it's 
calorically they are gram for gram for carbohydrates, but you mm. wouldn't just swap them. So now yeah. what are you doing and how are you dosing them? So, uh, yeah. yeah and, and look, the, the example, I've definitely said this on, on another podcast before is that, um, when people first began, you know, experimenting with carbohydrate consumption during exercise, it was glucose, then it was maltodextrin, then it was glucose plus fructose. People tried trehalose, people tried galactose, you know, there's been all of these different types of sugars tried in different combinations and so on. It takes 20 years to produce a body of work before you can be sure of, of what it might be. And again, ketones could ultimately fall flat in their face for all I know. But, you know, at the moment, there's, you know, there's enough people working on it that in the next couple of years, I think we're going to get a sense of whether this current state where there's, you know, kind of not much support for their benefit for, uh, you know, as an ergogenic aid, whether that changes as people begin to develop optimal um, uh, dosing strategies you know we'll wait and see but that point you mentioned about heart rate you know that's again that's something that i hear anecdotally all the time is this lower heart rate but we've never seen it in a research study and in fact in the uh the group marty gabala's group in in uh in mcmaster um they're showing elevated heart rate uh in response to keto consumption so it's amazing you know i, I don't know i don't really know what, what to make of all of that but it's uh it's uh, a lot of as we often say, you know, results to date are equivocal. <laughs> That's the line that appears in every paper. So, uh, yeah, let's see what happens over time. You'll have to send me some of the placebo stuff so I can uh, do a proper trial. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. for yourself taking it. Um, Brandon, can we move on to CGM? Um, what has yeah. your personal experience with CGM use been? Yeah, so a few years ago, we had um, an opportunity to apply for some funding, um, basically to do like student education. And it uh, the thing that I wanted to do was around CGM, The um, I have them even, there's some of them still sitting in my office here. It was the original Libra uh, sensor from, from Abbott. And uh, we just wanted to do some work around um, uh, just looking at glycemic responses and responses to exercise and meals and different things. It was purely from a from a teaching point of view within the undergraduate program here at, at TCU. Um, but of course, I started to wear one then just because I had a couple of extra. And uh, that was my first kind of exposure to uh, wearing one and looking at the responses. But I don't know if you ever worked with this uh, old uh, Libra device, but you kind of had this, you know, it looked like an old mobile phone pre-smartphone era and you kind of touched it and you got it something every 15 minutes and then you had to take it over to a to a computer plug it in and the app wasn't really functional it was you know it was so messy so um but then you know that's going back maybe uh, yeah like i said five six years so obviously uh, at that point i had some sense that um uh, of, of the way that um, cgm could be used and again i mean cgm has been used within the diabetes literature for for quite some time and my postdoc actually had been in the area of insulin resistance and, and diabetes so i was sort of reading in that in that space anyway so i've always been interested uh, from from that point of view and then obviously when uh, i first uh, met david and had, you know loosely seen some of the super sapien stuff in the background and then took more of an interest having uh, met david uh, and then got to try them out of course a couple of uh, different sensors um yeah i got a better insight into into what's possible with the with the device and have you got have you got some research going in the space or was i know we talked about potentially trying to get some like students doing some research with them or are you yet to, are you yet to get a no so what, what we ended up doing actually with the uh with the old libra devices was that we put them on a group of golfers and uh we were just interested in describing what happens in relation to uh to, to simulated golf um and um, that was pre that was the only piece of research we did, but it was a small end size. It was like a final year project. It wasn't worth um, publishing as as a paper because there was lots of different things that were uncontrollable in in that domain. But uh, you know that was the only piece of research that we've done. But 
Um, yeah, as you and I have discussed offline, there's definitely some opportunities, whether it's in team sport or whether it's in the likes of golf, to uh, to begin to look a little bit more at this. And you probably saw, I mean, the paper a paper came out there recently from the Australian Institute of Sport, kind of giving an overview of the field at the moment of, of CGM. And again, there was you know some negative notes struck, some optimistic notes struck, and it's again, it's uh, it's a field that is that's in its infancy in terms of. Um, how it can be used, whether it's during exercise or whether it's more around diet, whether it's more around behavior change. There's an awful lot of stuff that, that can be done. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, we just published a paper, it came out a, at the time of recording here, it was, it was out late last week uh, on rebound hypoglycemia risk. I think maybe there's some yeah. of that. There's also probably some you know, overtraining recovery stuff. There's some signal mm-hmm. coming through. I think we talked about that already a, you know, a while back. So, you know, it's in its infancy. Mm-hmm. I also think, and, and this is one of the reasons I realized you, you got it at the time was talking about data resolution, right? Minute by minute mm-hmm. looks different to 15 minute. And like, I think the field is still struggling with that historical 15 minute bias. Um, it just, it makes data interpretation different because the yeah. calculation yeah. of that is different as well. Cause it's a 15 minute average. It's not a instantaneous data point from 15 minutes, as I understand, I could be wrong, but as I understand, mm-hmm. they take a 15 minute average, which is very different mm-hmm. to a single data point at every yeah, 15 yeah. minutes. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think as, as uh, you well know, and I'm sure many people have probably discussed uh, with you before, you know, given getting that minute by minute feedback is going to be very useful in sports where, you know, fueling has to be done to a very accurate degree or that, you know, someone on the limit uh, can can react to, to a change there. And I presume again, that that's the way it's been used. I haven't worked directly with anyone who's using CGM on, from a performance point of view uh, as of yet, but it is something that um, athletes are becoming more and more aware of. And um, again, it's utility in, in different sports, uh, you know, during competition, you know, that's that's up for discussion as well. I, I wore it myself playing a few um, games and trainings with, with Gaelic football. And, um, you know, I think I relayed this to you, David, like my, my glucose levels didn't drop at all. You know, there's this whole conventional wisdom that as you play and as time's extended out that, you know, glucose levels will drop off and you just fatigue. But in team sports, that's not the case. And um, my levels just kept rising and rising. And that's not unexpected, of course, if you're consuming carbohydrate, if you're getting glucose, uh, glucose output is increasing and, and so on with, with repeated sprints. Um, but it was interesting still all the same to see. And maybe it kind of, a reassurance perhaps that you know high carbohydrate fueling during team sports you know doesn't it doesn't have to be as high as 120 grams that the you know the cyclists are taking you know a gel or, or a couple of uh, gulps of a sports drink is probably enough you know before the game and at half time to to kind of keep things stable but that was just me again there could be other players who, who are very different and the thing you remember about gaelic games is that it's only a 70 minute game in fact at the level that i currently play at the uh, sub elite level it's only a 60 minute game Whereas professional soccer, for example, is 90 minutes. They're covering thousands of meters more of in terms of distance. So again, in, in different sports, there may be different um, value and you know, there's a lot to be explored there. Yeah. And the generation, the genesis of fatigue is different in those different sports, right? It's of course, some yeah. of it can be yeah, metabolic. Yeah. Some of it can be musculoskeletal, neurological, and, and those are all different. But you touched... Yeah, I think that the so-called bonk that occurs in, say, endurance sports, we're not getting that in team <laughs> sports. That's, no. that's not a thing. No. Um, <laughs> You mentioned the 120 grams an hour. Um, really interested in your take here because of you know, the mixture of science and practicality and all those things. Uh, but you know, I've seen numbers well above 120, and I, I have it on authority that there are athletes, you know, taking probably north of 140. Uh, I guess wow. given that, and given that recent paper, I can't remember who the authors were. My apologies. Um, that actually used mm. CGM and looked at the crossover point. I'm sure you've seen this paper. It looked at a, a right shifted mm. crossover point from a high fat diet. Yeah. Um, 
sort of what's your take here? Where do you think we're headed? Like, I mean, this is these two things in themselves seem a little bit contradictory, but also mm. blow the lid off a bit of sports, uh, sports nutrition, conventional wisdom in the science. Yeah. Look, this has been a debate that's been going on for uh, the best part of 10 years now. I mean, um, so the, the authors on that paper, Andrew Kutnick uh, is a yeah. collaborator of mine on other projects. Yeah, Andrew was working on that and Tim Noakes and a couple of other uh, authors on that. But um, this idea that we can shift the uh, crossover point, um, as I had to remind Andrew when he sent me a draft of the paper, when he didn't cite our work, we actually published <laughs> on this. Yeah. So we had, we had actually done a study uh, a few years ago using a short-term ketogenic diet. And just essentially all we were showing was that that crossover point is very malleable when it comes to manipulation by, by diet. So, And this, is, I suppose, is the, um, the concern of people in the field is more like, you know, is no more than what I've described about our uh, ketone effect on, on running the economy. Like, is this is this really a genuine effect that could benefit performance? So, if you shift the uh, the fat oxidation curve to, to the right, in other words, that higher intensities of exercise, uh, lipids or fats are still making a significant contribution to energy provision. Does that ultimately mean that you either perform better or you use less glycogen? You've got more glycogen remaining for the end of a race. This kind of stuff. To be honest, I, I really don't think that's answerable by those types of, of studies. So um, so what would I say? I would say that the evidence is is very strong that uh, manipulating um, diet to be a low-carbohydrate diet can shift that crossover point. But the question still remains as to whether that can actually be a performance benefit when we're talking about high-end, high-intensity performance. Because the, the argument that's always made is that when you get to 90% and above a VO2 max, when you're above lactate threshold, um realistically is fat going to be a contributor to performance at that point and most conventional wisdom would say not and i don't i don't actually think that any of the um low carb high fat type dietary approaches i don't i don't think they actually contradict that i think they can show that at, at um you know moderate to high intensity that you can increase reliance on, on fat but I, I don't think that they show anything about the benefits that that would have to high intensity um performance and i suppose that's where you know, to be honest, that's been such an obvious question for the last number of years that the fact that it hasn't been answered kind of strikes me as conspicuous as well. You know, where are the studies of people on very low carb or ketogenic diets doing, you know, all out performance um, or doing marathon based performance? Um, now, as we move into the longer duration stuff, so don't get me wrong, as you move into ultra endurance, you know, there's again biological plausibility as to why that that type of a dietary approach could work well there and why you get away with with not lower to no carbohydrate intake um and again I, I i know as well about the anecdotes around people who've been ultra endurance athletes on keto diets so um the question again is and you kind of you mentioned something along this line earlier about you know is it optimal or is it uh you know that that's the question that keeps coming up is it is it good enough or is it optimal and i suppose if we're talking about elite high-end performance um i don't really know of many if any who are using that type of dietary approach whereas you can find lots and lots of anecdotes about people you know in the in the kind of sub elite range who are, who are following those types of practices and and let's say getting away with it um so a lot depends on the sport and a lot depends on the person for sure yeah and once you get to ultra endurance you may avoid a, a failure point as well which is gi upset right so there's a, another reason they may want to go away from higher carbohydrate intakes is that if you go to a higher fat approach, you can avoid needing to take as much carbohydrate and therefore avoid some of the GI risk. 
Um, well, that, and that actually is was part of the rationale for the uh, ketone only condition in, in the work that we talked about. Is that you know if if um, if the bonk, let's say, if low blood glucose um, and low glucose availability is a problem with long duration activity. I'd be reason. I would be reasonably confident to saying that if ketones are present, that that's going to mitigate some of that effect, whether it's centrally or, or um, uh, you know, whether it's sorry, cognitively or whether it's a, a, from a from a uh, energetics point of view as well. So I think that that might again. I think we uh, hinted at this at the end of our um, review paper that I mentioned uh, from last year. Is that it may be that in in conditions where there's low carbohydrate availability or say a reduced capacity to take carbohydrate on board, it could be the ketones stave off some of the um, adverse effects of low blood sugar or low glucose availability. So again, you know, that's just a hypothesis at this stage. I'm not uh, making any great claims about it, but uh, definitely something that's worth looking at. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. And just to be clear for people, just to clear up a couple of things that might have, uh, hopefully they haven't been lost in the conversation for now. So when we talk about <laughs> right shifting, uh, of this yeah, crossover yeah. point. Basically, traditionally, there is, I believe, 65% is probably the line of VO2 max. They mm. say you go from burning more fat to more carbohydrate. And in this paper of, I think, four weeks of, of low carbohydrate intake, they shifted that to 85%. So basically, mm. you're using predominantly fat for up to 85% of VO2 max, when previously yeah. we thought it was 65%. And the yeah. thought is, okay, maybe this is helpful. And, and Brendan's pointed out that you know probably marathon is where we're going to see this. If we see it, it's probably going to be helpful at the marathon perhaps longer mm. and we already said that and the shorter stuff is where it's probably not going to be beneficial and again mm. similar to ketones this is what we're seeing right 5k 10k performance equivocal mm. maybe worse uh for ketones mm. and or maybe you know some worse in ketones specifically but you know once you get mm. to like marathon maybe there's an argument for it yeah no that's a good summary of where things are at yeah um I want to get onto some supplements. You've done a ton of research into a bunch of supplements uh, and it's an area of interest of mine. Uh, but so maybe let's go back a step um, and go, or, or let's take it a bit quicker for the, for the listeners. Uh, right. You know, what would you say is some of the low hanging fruit for endurance athletes are with some, from supplement standpoint? Okay. Well, I, I suppose just one philosophy point, I suppose, on, on how I approach this is I mean, like, if everything else is is um, taken care of, let's say, if all the pillars of good nutrition practices are there, I'm fairly liberal in terms of my approach to supplements. Um, you know, I'll have at least tried lots of different things. Some of the stuff will be obviously evidence-based. You know, the best evidence is around things like nitrates, um, beetroot juice, for example, uh, caffeine, sodium bicarb. Again, there's nuances in all of those uh, points there in terms of doses and who it might work for and who might not work for. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's lots of other things that people say, well, you know, I've had a look at this other buffer, or I've had a look at this topical ointment, and, you know, it just goes on and on and on. But as, assuming that the, the athlete isn't, um, you know, put out by the cost of some of these things, I'd often, you know, work with them to, to certainly try them and uh, and see what the, what the benefits might be on an individual basis. And um, I suppose the reason I bring that up as a point is because if, if the pillars aren't there, you know, I really don't want someone messing around with supplements because it's just distracting from where the actual, you know, the major impact could be. So if someone's diet, if, you know, if they're not fueling right, if they're not getting enough energy in general, if they're not getting enough protein, blah, 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 all the stuff we've talked about already, if those pillars aren't there, then, you know, there's no point really trying to uh, paper over the cracks with, with supplement use but one, once once that once those pillars are in place i think it's worth trying these different things and um the reason the reason i say um being liberal is it kind of goes back to this idea of the practitioner versus the academic you know it's very hard to find 
uh, a good evidence, you know, it takes a while, I should say, to develop an evidence base around certain supplements, yet athletes will be willing to try uh, things that come to market or things that they hear about. And, you know, assuming that there's no downside, uh, you know, it's kind of this idea that there's a low risk, but then a high reward um, type of potential that, that's there for, for certain supplements. And the anecdote I'll tell on this, just from, again, for personal experience, is that if you look into the literature around pseudoephedrine, for example, there's very little support for pseudoephedrine as a performance aid. Yet, personally, I found it to be quite beneficial to, to my own performance. And it was totally uh, um, serendipitous because I was having uh, a couple of times during one winter season, I was having colds and I, I was taking, uh, you know, the pseudoephedrine that come off the ban list. So now you can buy it over the counter in, in these cold remedies. And I was taking it before a game just to feel a bit better. And I was like, hold on, this, this feels a bit like a performance benefit here. Especially, so then I waited until the- Especially with <laughs> caffeine. I had someone text me about this one. It's like, hey, is there any research on this? This feels great. And I'm like, I don't think you should be yeah. doing that. Yeah, so I uh, I uh, I actually don't do it all the time for the simple reason that uh, you know once once I uh, well I have kids uh, and I it, I'd just be afraid of taking anything that could have some kind of adverse effect on my heart or whatever. So um, so that that sort of dampened my um, uh, how risky I try certain things. But I had noticed these uh, these effects of of uh, pseudoephedrine when I had a cold. So then you know when I was at, free of uh, of of a cold, then I just tried taking it and I was like, this really does perform and again blinding anecdote you know all the stuff fool yourself and all that kind of stuff but um it was one of those things where i was like you know what when i go and look at the literature and there's not really that much evidence here when you look at the mean values when you look at the individual data points there are some people who are again it goes back to this whole thing about response versus non-response and uh whatever it was i just seemed to derive a benefit so i kind of take that uh, that similar approach with um with athletes is that um you know you have to be careful uh, about how you how you um explore any given supplement in terms of whether it might have a benefit and you know it's things like standardized conditions it's workouts that they that they know they've done in the past that they roughly know what the performance looks like um that you're doing it relatively close together so there's not you know a training effect or whatever and generally more than a couple of observations you know you test out supplement x on three different occasions with an athlete and three different times they think that their performance is better than they normally would have then that's something they could use regardless of what the evidence base says in the published literature and I think that's a fair approach to take. Um, that is, you know, it's a blend of evidence based you know, you're applying a kind of an evidence-based lens within your own practice with an N of one, but observed on multiple occasions. And I think that's a fair enough approach to uh, to trying to explore like supplements that might be there thereabouts when it comes to benefits. Yeah, I think it's a really good way to think about it. And also like that's where we're starting to see consumer tech, right? And yes, CGM is one of those, mm. but there are other consumer techs. You could say heart rate, you could say a number mm. of things and say like, oh, now we have a way to actually take a bit of a lab, so to speak, mm. into the field and really see it on an individual level. Whereas previously, like, you know, I know people who, for instance, with super shoes have gone to a, mm. a lab and had VO2 done while they test different <laughs> super shoes. Like that's cost prohibitive for a large number of people, depending on where you live in the world. Um, but, you know, is it easier to get that done another way? Can we use a consumer grade wearable? And there was a paper released mm. recently that suggested we could use some of the running power perhaps, um, which is really interesting. But yeah, well, like in, in our domain, so in, in team sports, we often do these one kilometer time trials. And um, it's funny, like over the course of uh, of a season, you know, there are improvements obviously that can occur as we get fitter. And in the fairness, the team that I play for are rigorous around doing the test on a AstroTurf. So like, you know, it, it's not that you get you look fitter in the summer because the ground is harder. Um, it's, it's, it is more to do with the, the, the surfaces controlled. But um, those types of like that type of a, of a standard test can be a useful test again if, if you can see a performance benefit of a few seconds, you know, in a, in a test separated by, say, a week, for example. 
you know, that's enough to say, oh, actually, there could be something here. But again, team sports always a bit more difficult because there's so many variables in, in success when it comes to team sport. But certainly in the in endurance athletes in particular, where you've got, like I said, defined workouts or defined tests that you can do, um, you know, there's definitely ways to explore new novel supplements and whether they can have a benefit. Yeah. You, you know, I just mentioned your sporting stuff. Let's touch on that for a second. Firstly, what, what's your 1K time trial time? <laughs> okay so now we this is getting personal so uh when i was younger <laughs> someone reminded me recently so I, i've just i've turned four i'm nearly 41 actually so i'm still playing at uh, at the sub elite level at the high the, let's say the highest sub elite level you could play so i've uh, you know some uh, small bit of pride about that but my fitness levels are laughable now. So uh, I'm on, you know, in team sport, when they talk about speed is in the head, uh, you know, the first yard or two, it's like the whole game is in my head. <laughs> just, just to say, anyway. but anyway, I'm beating around the bush. My best time for 1K at the moment is, is four minutes, one second. So it's, uh, it's pretty that impressive. impressive. There's guys, well, there's guys in my team that are running in 315. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a big, there's a big range between me and the, and the young fit guys. But, uh, now, when, like someone reminded me recently that I was complaining about my uh, level of performance on these tests, and said, "You know, in your twenties, you were you were well known for how athletic you were." <laughs> I was like, "All right, okay, what, just hold on to that." What was the time? What was the time in your twenties then? Well, this is the funny thing. Going back again, like that—that that was like nearly twenty years ago. So we didn't even do testing like that back then. <laughs> so I don't even have any reference point. That's that's the hilarious thing. Things have changed from a sports science point of view. And uh, do they call you? Any, I know in Australia, if you were still playing at that sort of level, uh, given your age, with all due respect, they would call you something like dad or uh, something like that as part of the <laughs> thing. I mean, I was coaching in Amsterdam two years ago. And we had a guy who was thirty. What do we? He would have been thirty-two, thirty-three at the time. And they were calling him dad. Mm. So, uh, anything, mm-hmm. anything rough like that? No, no. I think uh, they're too afraid to do that. Uh, these young guys. Awesome. <laughs> I, see, see, I had a reputation back in the day for, uh, um, well. I can't think of a good word that that uh, doesn't involve sounding rough and violent, but uh, anyway, um, physicality. That was, that was a physicality. By, by physicality, yeah, but that's a bygone era. I don't like that anymore. No, I love it. Mellowed out. And so, still sub elite uh, Gaelic football, and what does that look like? Two mm. twice, two trainings in a game, or is it more serious than that? Yeah, so we uh, we would have yeah two supervised gym sessions a week, two uh, pitch based sessions, and then uh, then a game. So yeah, it's a five day week basically. Wow! So it's, you're training more than Zylan, and he went to Kona. <laughs> <laughs> and you do that for he's kind of smart. That might be it. <laughs> you do that for health reasons, for enjoyment, all of the above. Look, it's a, it's a it's a very important question because um, you know there's not two there's one other guy in our team at the same age who's playing and then there's a pretty large gap and uh, again generally speaking at the elite level in Gaelic games most people are finished by about 32. Uh, I finished uh, when I was 35 and there were a couple of others on my team again who were around that age but you know usually the elite level performance ends in the 30s and many people don't stay around then to play sub elite but. I um again I derived so much benefit from it uh, again from as you say from a health point of view even though I'm in exercise science and in theory would know all sorts of things about training and periodization and all the rest of it I'd much rather someone else tells me uh, tells me what to do and um, so for now um, you know I can still play at a decent level I can still get away with it uh, I've been lucky not to have any very serious injury over my although I've injured most joints uh, none of them have been serious enough to to knock me out so. Um, yeah, it's kind of one of those things. It's um, it's the one thing that when I you know when I play or train, uh, whatever day that's on, you know, I just completely switch off from all other things 
um, in life. And there's a huge benefit as well to hang around these younger guys. You know, I'm not on social media and uh, I still get to hear what's going on in the world by being around these younger guys. That, that's part of my, uh, part of my motivation as well. I heard uh, Quade Cooper, the Australian fly half, uh, mention that the new fly half is sort of um, is on the bench coming on a bit. He said his first try was in 4K and mine was in black and white. Um, and uh, ironically, I remember Quade playing when he was 16. I remember watching him play when he was 16 at school level. So like that speaks to my age. So uh, well, I'll give you another funny one. Then the uh, similar similar theme is that uh, the guys that I play with now, um, some of them weren't even born when I started playing adult level. Uh, yeah, football and yeah. you know this kind of uh you know it's two set you know the five day training regime that i mentioned there like i've been doing that for you know 20 this is my 24th year of doing that now so uh and some of these guys are complaining after one or two seasons of it so um yeah As <laughs> and no one said anything like you played against my dad <laughs> not quite although the funny story is maybe part of my longevity here is that when i was about 16 and i started playing adult level uh, my father was, he was 51, I think, at the time, and he was still playing. Now, this was very low-level adult football, but maybe that was uh, the inspiration to, to not give up too, too young. Yeah. Well, I mean, LeBron James had that said to him. Someone said, oh, you played against my dad. And it was LeBron, LeBron's <laughs> debut was against this guy's dad, and this guy's debut was against LeBron. So, uh, yeah, geez, maybe it's not too far off. I need to be, I need to be careful, yeah. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, Brendan, uh, David promised that this would be a good chat, a good episode, and he was not lying. Oh, good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah, no, it's great. Over. We, um, yeah, really appreciate your time, Brendan. It's been great. Um, we may, uh, yeah, may well reach back out. So uh, don't be scared if you get another email. It's, uh, I'm sure this episode's <laughs> going to be really good for us and, and great. So really appreciate your time. It won't take too much more, but just thanks again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Very enjoyable. David, as I said on the podcast, that was every bit as good as you promised. Um, Brendan Egan, such a fascinating chat. I know you loved something that he said on the podcast, which was about asking for feedback at the end of the year on his work. Yeah, I mean, as a young nutritionist, I mean, that's probably how it, how we get, it's how we get better in the discussion. Like that is how we get better is via feedback and asking for that, uh, I think is is hard and it's hard, especially in that position. Cause like, imagine if all the feedback's bad, imagine if the feedback's bad and the club finds out about it, then all of a sudden you no longer have a job. So I think that's, that takes a lot from someone to even ask for it. And I think that's really, really important in all aspects of life as an athlete, as a, you know, whatever, doing whatever you do working. I think that's so important. And, uh, you know, in, in effect, that's what technology is doing. We talked a bit about sensors and, and science in the wild and being able to get your own feedback on whether supplements work. And I think, you know, CGM might be part of that. Uh, other sensors could as well, heart rate, et cetera. So it's all just a method of feedback. Some people are using CGM for that, for dietary stuff. Um, and, you know, if you have a, uh, let's call it a CGM friendly diet, maybe it is for some people an improvement in health. Uh, not, all, not all. And and there are some unhealthy foods you can eat and, and have a flat uh, glucose trace, but uh, it may stop some of the processed foods. It may stop some of the high sugar foods that people are eating. So uh, yeah, not all bad. And then protein, um, I mean, I had to ask him the question with regards to why would you have a, the bulk of your protein in the morning? Um, what were your takeaways from what he was saying? So it's, it's not the bulk, it's about spreading it equally across right, the day. Right, but, right, um, right. but I mean, even if you think about it from a health perspective, there's this standard health saying is like, eat breakfast like a prince, sorry, a king, lunch like a prince and dinner like a pauper to try and front load um, meal sizes as well. And I think from a sleep point of view, there's a lot of 
focus on not eating late at night. And I think there's, there's, that makes sense there. But I mean, spreading your protein across the day makes a ton of sense uh, from a logistics standpoint as well, just trying to get a bit more and same with vegetables, as we said in the podcast at sort of breakfast. It'll also, if you think about some of the stuff we can have for breakfast and we talk about healthy foods, getting a bit more protein, getting a bit more vegetable at breakfast will almost certainly improve the health of your breakfast. Um, just it's, it's almost impossible not to. Um, but yeah, I, look, I've been preaching the protein distribution stuff, the volumes of protein as well. Um, he's probably a bit more evidence-based than I am uh, and a bit more uh, evidence-based in terms of performance with the numbers he gave. I often say like up to 2, 2.2, which is more strength athletes, but I, you know, I sort of advocate endurance athletes there as well. But um, he's probably, you know, I, I would go with him if choosing between the two of us. Uh, he knows the research better <laughs> than I do. Yeah, I would go with him as well. We agree on something finally. Um, and then I know you love research um, and he was talking about the challenges in research, you know, doing your research in a lab versus out in the field, elite athletes versus sub elite athletes. Yeah. It's just difficult to get right. Like he talked about that, you know, the ketone study with the ultra endurance. He's like, yeah, well, we don't, we can't really do it in a race cause like all of those variables. And I'm like, it just speaks to how hard things are. And, and then you, you do the best you can, you submit it and the, re- and the, re- and the, uh, the reviewers are always like, oh, well, you didn't do this. And it's like, mate, I, I did my best, please. It's just like, be nice. <laughs> so, yeah. And I mean, that that whole field of what's valid for the practitioner versus uh, the researcher, right? He was talking about grams of carbohydrates. And it's like, yeah, but what is that? What does that actually mean to the athlete? Like, is that cereal or is that toast or is it both? Or like, you know, so it just gets really hard to thread that needle and do good research that is both clinically or, or scientifically and uh, practically valid. Um, and I think one of the reasons Brendan's been so successful in his career is he does a good job of that. You made a note during that podcast where you wrote, don't make a cake out of icing. What is that about? It's it's about supplements. His whole approach was, if we asked him about what's some of the low hanging fruit and he stopped and, and did what all good nutritionists do, which is like, make sure you get your diet right first. And I think it's this approach that someone else has, uh, I've stolen from somebody else that I can't remember who at the moment, so apologies, but it's, um, you know, if supplements are the icing and the cake is training and nutrition and all that stuff is like, you know, don't make a cake out of icing. So like, make sure you got everything else right first. So you've got to be doing the training properly and eating properly and sleeping properly and all that stuff. And then start with supplements. Don't start with supplements first. And, and he talked about actually doing that sometimes to win over athletes, but that's the difference between uh, being a practitioner and being a clinician and, and being a researcher. But I think the point remains is if you can avoid uh, supplements until you've you know earned the right by having a good diet or something like that, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks for putting that together. Um, as you mentioned, everything we, we talked about, we'll put in the show notes, including, uh, don't forget to put morning poop article in the show notes, David. I will, just... I, will put, I will put the morning poop article in the show notes for you. I know you enjoyed it when I put it on our, when I put it on our chat, mate, you loved it. So uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll put it in there for everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Super Sapiens podcast, downloading and subscribing. Please share it with a friend. Um, and as always, we love getting you, giving you a shout out on, on this podcast. So we love hearing about your sporting endeavors, your, the challenges you're overcoming, what you're experiencing, what you're learning. Please let us know. Email david at supersapiens.com or join us on Discord. Follow the Super Sapiens Discord channel. Thank you for downloading, David. Thanks for hooking this up and putting it together. And yeah. We'll be back with another episode after this. Thank you, mate.